God, we love you, and we just thank you for who you are, God. God, we thank you that we can come to a series like this and, and ask the tough questions of you, and we can seek the, the tough questions in Scripture. God, and we know that your Scripture says that if we, if we seek you with all of our heart, we will find you. And so, God, I pray that this morning as we continue to seek you and some of the answers to these questions, that we would, that we would find you. God, that you would move in this place, that you would begin to, to speak into our hearts and our minds, even in this moment right now. Would you, would you prime us for what you're about to say, God? And would you, again, just as you do every week, speak through me. And don't let it be just my words that are up here speaking. God, no one, no one here needs to hear from me. God, we want to hear from you. And so, God, we give you praise. We give you thanks. We give you glory. It's all for you, God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, again, we're in week four of our Reason for God series uh, in which we are talking about some of the big questions that people have about our Christian faith. Uh, and it has been uh, just an amazing time this, this, this whole month or so as I've been doing all of this stuff. And, and I know our small groups have had an amazing time as well as they've gone through a few weeks now of, of just dialoguing and, and answering these questions and talking about these questions and and I, I promise you, I'm not, I'm not giving anything away. You can come to a small group, even now, uh, and begin to, to join these conversations. The weeks don't necessarily build on each other. We're just going to get together and, and dialogue. And so I encourage you, if you haven't yet come, come to a Monday night one, come to a Thursday night one, and just see, uh, see what God is up to. God is up to some amazing things in these small groups as we discuss uh, these questions. And, and so far, uh, we've talked about three questions. We've talked about the Bible. Why, why should I trust the Bible? Why can't I trust the Bible? Isn't the Bible just a myth? Hasn't science disproven the Bible? And so we talked about how, how we can trust the Bible, how we should trust the Bible, how, how the Bible should be central to each and every one of our lives as believers. This book is so important. So important. It should be central to every single piece of who we are. The second week, we talked about, uh, is there really only one way to God? How can you tell me that there's only one way to God, the, the people ask? How, how can that be true? Look at all these people. They are, they are good people. They, they truly believe what they believe. They, they believe that God has spoken to them and, and showed them this. But how can you tell me that there is only one way to God? And I told you, last, I told you that week, and I'll tell you again today, man, I, I so desperately want that to be true, that there is more than one way to God. But I cannot make a scriptural case for that. Scripture is pretty clear that there is one way to God through the blood of, and, and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is the way. Yes, there is one way to God. Last week, last week we answered this question. Why are there so many rules? Why are there so many rules? What is up with all of these rules? Why are we so legalistic? Why do we, why do, we do all this? And at the end, I just, if you went away last week hearing nothing from me, I want you to hear this, that, that rules are not central to our faith. Jesus is central to our faith. And as we, as we build this relationship with Jesus, as we follow Jesus, as we let Jesus direct and guide our lives, the rules and the, the things that we do will, will follow. All right, but let's not, let's not be a, a faith that is, that is known more for what we're against and the rules that we have to do this and don't do this. Let's be, let's be a faith that is known for who we follow in Jesus. And this week... Uh, this week, I'm not going to lie to you, has been, a, has been a rough week for me. This week's question, I think, is, is really poignant, especially given the events of this week on Wednesday and the shooting in Florida. The, the question this week is this. Why does God allow suffering? And I'll tell you, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I knew where I was going with this sermon. Wednesday, to turn on the TV and to see what happened in Florida changed things for me. It made it kind of hit home for me a little bit. Why, why does God allow suffering? Right, well, you see things like this on Wednesday, and 17 people lose their lives to a shooter in, the, in a school, in the, in the place where everybody should feel safe. They lose their lives. God, if you are good and if you are loving, then how can that happen? How can this be? Right, and this is, this is the question that people ask. If, if God is good and if God is love, and you tell me he is, these people who, who don't believe, they hear Christians say this. If God is, you tell me that God is good and you tell me that God is love, 
then how can things like this happen? Here's the objection from the, from the small group book this week and what I've been kind of working off of. Here's, here's what it says. People say that the fact of appalling evil and suffering in the world is one of the main reasons they cannot believe in the traditional God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is portrayed as a God who is both all-powerful and all-good. If that God exists, he would not create a world filled with pointless evil. Yet the world is filled with pointless evil, therefore the God of the Bible cannot exist. <clears throat> now these are very, this is a valid concern. This is a valid thing, right? This is, this is, this is not just a new thought either. There's, a, there's an old Greek philosopher in, in uh, he was born in 341 B.C. named Epicurus. And Epicurus uh, had a lot to say about pain. And in fact, uh, I was reading through the small group material this morning. And he's in there a little bit. You'll, you'll read some of his stuff in the small group book. He had a lot to say about pain. And he did not believe in God, mostly because of this question of pain and suffering. And, and, here's, and, and here's in a nutshell what he said. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? then he is impotent. <clears throat> is he able to prevent it, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able to prevent it and not willing to prevent it? Then he is evil. Now, there's an assumption here that underlies this objection and what Epicurus is saying here that God somehow created evil. But I can tell you this morning, this is not the case biblically. When God created the world, it was perfect. When God created the world, it was peaceful. It was eternal. God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden in the beginning of Genesis, and he, he is with them. He's in this relationship with them. And in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve make a decision that changes everything. Sin enters the world. And as sin enters the world, evil and suffering enter with it. Right? And, and, and this changes everything. It changes the structure. It changes the, the, the foundations of life as we know it. It changes the framework within which life works. Right? You read the, the curses that God puts on the land and on Adam and Eve after this happens and and you realize that this is not the way that it was meant to be. We were, not meant, we were not created to be in this evil, fallen world. We were created to be in a perfect relationship, in a perfect place, in perfect creation, eternally and peacefully with God. This is the, this is the goal of creation. And in Genesis 3, this gets ruined, this gets taken out. And so, so, yes, evil enters the scene in Genesis 3 as Satan convinces Adam and Eve to eat the apple. But this is not part of God's original creation. And you see the whole story of Scripture from this point forward trying to get people to come back to this perfect, eternal, peaceful relationship with God. But, but evil is a part of the story. Suffering is a part of the story. This is, the suffering is, is, is a part of life. We can't get away from it. But I can tell you this morning that this evil and suffering was not a, a creation by God just to sit in and to watch us toil and torment. Evil and suffering were not in the original creation of God. They were, they were introduced as Adam and Eve's sin. And as sin enters the world, evil enters the world. Suffering enters the world. This is not the way God intended It's not a part of the original plan. But where we sit today, it's an inescapable part of life. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And in this book, he has a, I'll just, I just want to read a couple quotes for you this morning uh, from The Problem of Pain. Here's what he says. Try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, and you find that you have excluded life itself. He goes on, and, and, and people sometimes have this, well, I've, uh, he's such a good person, he's a believer, if it, how, how could God do this to him? And here's, here's what he says to that, the real problem is not why some pious, humble, believing people suffer, but why some do not. 
Right? Suffering is just a part of who we are. It's a, it's a, it's a part of, of where we are now as a people. Right? But I, I, I have some truth this morning about suffering. That it, doesn't, it, does, it won't always be here. Suffering in the end is not there. Suffering in the end, as we get the new creation and the new heaven and the new earth, the, the suffering is no longer there. We are returned into this perfect unity, this perfect relationship with God once again, and it is peaceful, and it is perfect, and it is eternal, and there is no more suffering. There is no more toil. There is no more disease. There is no more anything like that. There is no more of this because we are in the presence of God. See, but suffering is, is not just a part of our lives. Suffering has been a part of the picture all throughout. Ever since Genesis 3, there has been suffering as part of the picture. Right? I can, I, you, can, you can pick out examples from, from Scripture here. You look at the example of David. Right? And David is looked at in many, in many cases, he's even named, as a man after God's own heart. doesn't mean he was a perfect guy. You can read Scripture and understand that David was definitely not a perfect guy. But God, David was a man after God's own heart. And listen to, listen to what David says in Psalm 13. In Psalm chapter 13, he says, How long will you forget me? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes where I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you're just like, God, answer me. How long are you not going to be here with me? God, how long do I need to go through this time in my life? How long must I suffer? And give me an answer, God. David is at this point in his life, and you remember David in, in parts of his life was, was essentially being hunted by people and chased by people, and, and there's, there's case to say that this might have been from that time. How long will you hide from me? How long must I, how, how long will you hide your face? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? How long will my enemy triumph over me? But then he goes on. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Now, this is a psalm here. David is, David is just crying out to God. God, I don't understand this. I, I don't get this, but, but I trust you. But I trust you. God, even in the midst of suffering, I trust you. In the New Testament, I'm reminded this morning of a... Of a Story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, is, has, has literally dedicated his life to, to foretelling the coming of Jesus. He's this crazy guy out in the wilderness baptizing people and, and, and just wearing some crazy stuff and saying some even crazier things like, Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent and be baptized. He's, he's, he's presenting the gospel out in the wilderness and, and he's doing all of these things for Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene, and he's doing all these miracles. He's, he's doing exactly what John the Baptist foretold that he would do. And John finds himself in prison. And while John is in prison, he keeps hearing about all of these things that Jesus is doing. All of these things Jesus is doing in, in, in like a nearby town. Like he, he's sitting in prison, and, and here's John, knowing who Jesus is, because he's foretold of who Jesus is, having spent his whole life dedicated to the cause of Christ, pointing people to Christ, and here he is sitting in prison and knowing this thing about, about Jesus. You could do something, but you're not. Have you ever thought that? God, you could do something about this, but you're not. And so John asked, asked, sends people to ask Jesus the same thing we would ask Jesus. God, you're doing, you're, you are able to do this, but you're not. Are you even here? Are you even real? Right? Where are you in this? And so John sends some of his disciples to Jesus, and they ask him this question. Are you the one who was to come, or should we be expecting someone else? John is sitting there like, hey, I'm, I'm sitting here rotting in prison 
for doing really nothing wrong except for promoting Jesus. And Jesus is out here doing his thing, doing the things that I told people that he would do, and yet here I sit. Jesus is in walking distance from me. He can do something about this, and he doesn't. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? And in the mid, John, I mean, you can, you can see this. John is like just suffering here. Maybe you've been there. You feel like you've just been wronged. You feel like you're, you're in a place that you shouldn't be. Like, I don't deserve this. But yet here I am. God, where, where are you in this? But hands down, when I think of suffering in Scripture, I think of one man and one book. It's a long book. And his name is Job. When I think of suffering and Scripture, that's the first name that comes to my mind. It's the first story that comes to my mind. Job. Job is a guy who, who just goes through a ton of awful stuff in his life. Like, like a, we're going to read a lot of it this morning, but he's gone through a ton of awful stuff, and he's asking the same question a lot, like 25 times in the book of Job. He asks this question, why? Why? Now, why is this happening? Why me? What is, what is going on here? Why do you treat me like this? What is going on? And, and I want to give you a warning up front. There, there are no easy answers to the question of suffering in the book of Job. You will not find an easy answer, an easy out, uh, uh, something to... Uh, you're not going to hear me this morning to say, it's going to be okay. It's gonna, you don't get the easy kind of just ease from Job here. Job struggles with this. Job, Job, Job goes into a lot of this stuff. And what, what, like I said, I'm not, I'm not hoping to just give you some easy answers to pain and suffering this morning, but what I want to give you this morning is maybe just a few foundational truths that we can stand on in times of suffering. A few things that, that are scripturally based, a few things that scripture tells us about suffering, some truths that we can stand on in times of pain and suffering, and, and maybe help us to be prepared as much as possible when suffering comes. But even that is a lofty goal, right? To be prepared when suffering comes is not an easy thing. Right? No one wakes up and thinks, yeah, I think I'm going to suffer today. None of those parents on Wednesday woke up and thought, I'm not going to see my kid anymore. None of the wives, none of the, none of the kids of the adults thought, I'm not going to see my mom or my dad anymore. There's nothing we can be prepared for and suffering, but, but I want to just give us some truths this morning to maybe help us give us a foundation. So turn, turn to Job chapter 1 with me. If you're in one of our pew Bibles on page 359, and we're going to be pretty much just camping in Job this morning for a while. <coughs> we're going to start at verse 1 in chapter 1, and we're just going to read for a while, mostly through chapter 2. I just want you to hear the story of Job. Job chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people in the east. His sons used to hold their feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a, when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flock and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything that he has, and surely he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then imagine or everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, 
When Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, Your sons and your daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, and when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. To present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to his face, to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. You talk about suffering. Job loses everything here. He loses all of his livestock. His sons and his daughters are gone, and, and Job loses everything. And I think from, from just these two chapters, I think we, we see some truths in here that, that we know deep down are already true. We know deep down these truths about suffering. Here's the first one. Suffering is often undeserved. No one deserves to suffer. And the author makes it really, he, he goes into some, some pretty clear uh, he makes it really clear here that, there, that Job is not a guy who deserves to suffer. Three times in, this, in just those two chapters, it says that he is uh, <clears throat> blameless, upright, he feared God, and he shunned evil. This is a, this is a, a picture of a man that is, that is in tune with God. It has the heart of God. Two of the times that have said this are from the mouth of God. God himself says, Job is a man who is blameless and upright. He fears me and shuns evil. This is, Job did not deserve it. God, the, the author here makes it clear. And I want to just say this, blameless here. When, when it says Job is blameless, it doesn't mean he's perfect. Right? Scripture is, is clear. There's only one man that is perfect, and that's Jesus Christ. But blameless is talking about Job's integrity here. Think about, think about Job's integrity here. Job, Job was a man of, of, of love. He was a man of uh, integrity. He sacrifices for his kids after they have a party just in case they sinned. He loves his family. In the rest of the book, and you read that he's, he's a respected judge. He's a wise counselor. He's, he's respected for his generosity and his care for the poor. This is a man who does not deserve to suffer. He goes out of his way to say that Job didn't deserve to suffer. Suffering is often undeserved. Suffering is also often unexpected. Right? It's unexpected. Job didn't wake up on the, the one day that it says, or, or either day really, that these people come to him and tell him all the stuff that has happened to his life. It was unexpected for him. 
Right? He didn't wake up and think, I, I bet I'll suffer today. No one, no one wakes up and thinks is that. No, it, it catches us off guard. This is what suffering does. It catches us off guard. Suffering, number three, is often unimaginable. It's unimaginable. I, I mean, one after the other. You can, I said it's unimaginable. You can't really even imagine Job sitting there one day. Someone comes up. Your oxen and your servants are gone. While he's talking, someone else comes up. And while he's talking, someone else comes up. And while he's talking, after being told he's just lost everything, while they're talking, someone comes up and says, by the way, your family is dead also. I'm the only one to come and tell you this. Now, you, you, this, is, this is unimaginable pain here. And by, by 2.8, this, this once respected man is sitting on a trash heap using broken pottery to itch the sores on his body. Now, this, is, this is unimaginable. This is, this, is some, this, is what, this is what suffering is. Suffering is sometimes unimaginable. It's undeserved, it's, un, it's unexpected, it's unimaginable, but suffering is always painful. Suffering is always painful. No matter what kind of suffering it is, pain is at its core. In, one ver- in, in chapter 120, or not chapter 120, but chapter 1, verse 20, it says that Job tore his robes and he shaved his head. Now this, this seems funny to us, right? It's, it's not the way that we mourn, it's not the way that we do things, but this is, in Scripture at least, a, a way to just kind of just, this is like a violent mourning here. This is a serious morning. This is my, my life is, is over kind of morning here. When you're tearing your clothes and shaving your head, it, who am I that this should happen to me? This is the kind of morning that Job is doing here. This is, this is a painful thing. It's a picture of a violent, a violent, painful grief and suffering hurts. It's painful. And some of you this morning are familiar with suffering. Some of you this morning have gone through suffering. Maybe some of you are even going through something right now. Right? What's the old saying? You're either, you're either going into a storm, you're in a storm, or you're coming out of a storm. Is that the, that's the saying, right? There will be storms in life. There will be pain in life. There will be suffering in life. But how do we get through? That's the question I want to talk about this morning. How, how do we get through the suffering? I don't think we need to answer the question, why is there suffering? I think, I think Scripture makes it clear that, that the suffering is there. It's, just a, it's a part of life after the fall. But I think the question that I want to talk about this morning is, is how do we get through this? What do we do when suffering comes our way? How do we, how do we get through the suffering? Because you look, and in, and in Job chapter 42... Right, here's, here's how the book ends in Job 42, verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camel, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second, and he goes all these names here. I won't read all that. Nowhere in all the land where they were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them and inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man and full of years. Here's the question. How do we get from Job chapter 2, where Job is sitting on a trash heap itching himself with broken pottery, to Job chapter 42, where Job is living out his days and seeing his great-great-great-grandchildren grow up. And there's a, <clears throat> it's easy to, to look at Job and, and just to think about the suffering part, right? Job could, could be a short book if we think about it. Job goes through suffering, doesn't curse God, and what a great story. Two chapters of Job. There are 42 chapters in the book of Job. And I think they're there for a reason. I think, I think this book is here to, to show us a little bit of how to deal with suffering. How do, we, how do we get through this? We may not go, we may not ever have a day like Job had. I, I pray none of us have a day like Job had. Everything is gone. By the way, your family's all dead. Just so you know. I, I hope none of us have a day like that. But how do we get through suffering? How do we. <clears throat> How do we do this? 
Right? Job, Job didn't curse God. All is good. Job didn't curse God at the end of chapter 2. But there are, there are 40 extra chapters here of journey from Job with this discussion. How do we get there? Well, Job, Job begins at the end of what we just read to have a conversation with three of his friends. <clears throat> and these three friends begin to just dialogue with Job and talk with Job about some, some things. And uh, <clears throat> if you turn to, to Job chapter 2 again with me. I just want to read just a, a little piece of what, what we've got here going on. <clears throat> Verse 11, where we left off. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz and Temanite, Bildad, Emonite, the Temanite, Bildad and Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go over and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads. And they, they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. Now in chapter 3, Job breaks his silence. And I want to just I want to read this, because I want you to see how heavy this is weighing on Job. This is not, remember, Job's... Job's suffering was not just a one-day thing. Right, Job went through a, a, a day of suffering and another day where, where he gets inflicted with all these things, but, but there is a journey here that Job is about to go on, and here is, here is Job's mindset at the beginning. After this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish in the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May the, no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight and vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide my trouble from my eyes. He begins to ask, why here? Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins, with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. Why is light given to those in misery? And a life to the bitter of soul, to those who's, who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than their hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighting, sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. That is heavy. This is the mindset of Job as he, as he as begins this journey, this, these conversations with, with his three friends. This is his mindset here. How do we get from there to Job chapter 42? How do we get from there to the end where, where, where Job is able to, to live out the rest of his days and have more? How do we get there? I think there's, there's a few truths that we can learn along this way. And we're going to, again, just kind of go through the book of Job here. I'm going to take like a 30,000 foot view at the book of Job and talk about some truths that Job knows that helps him get from point A to point B. From chapter 3 to chapter 42. Here's the first truth. When the pain of suffering persists, God is still present. When the pain of suffering persists, God is still present. In the rest of the book, you see a lot of Job speaking. 
And when he speaks to his friends, he's, he's, he's really speaking to, to God as well. He knows that God is listening. You can see this from what he says in the book. He, Job knows that even in the midst of his pain, even in the midst of his suffering, that God is still there. You can see this, you can see this throughout. He knows God is there. He's wrestling with this stuff that he's talking about in light of the presence of God. Even just in this chapter 3, he asked why five times. It's, it's natural, right? We want to know why. We, and, and it's not wrong to ask why. It's perfectly natural for us to want to know why things happen. But I'm convinced that in the end, we don't, we don't need to necessarily know why. We don't, we, our expectation is that we would know why. We want an explanation. But instead of an explanation, God gives us himself. Instead of telling us why things are happening, God gives us his presence. I think of it like this. There's, think of a, a, last summer I had to go to the hospital with Hayden after he broke his arm. When Hayden broke his arm, the last thing that I needed was for the doctor to come in and give me the medical terminology for where his arm was and what they were going to do. And, and probably how it happened and all this other kind of stuff. That's the last thing I wanted. What I wanted from that doctor was one thing. Fix it. Fix it. You're, what you're saying is like way above my head right now. He has a broken arm. I get that. Fix it. I don't need an explanation. I understand his arm is broken. Fix it. Do something. Sometimes I think when we're in the suffering, we, we have this tendency, we expect God to tell us why things are happening. Right? God, why? Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why, why is this the case, God? And we, we continue to ask God why. I don't think asking why is a bad question, but I think God, even though we want an explanation, God in turn gives us himself. Right? You turn to, to chapter 7 here. Chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 17. Here's what... Uh, This is Job speaking. What is mankind that you make so much of them? That you give them so much attention? That you examine them every morning and test them every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? Now this is Job again speaking to God, knowing that God is is present in his pain. He says, will you never just leave me alone? Will you never not be with me, God? Where I know you are here. In, in, in the presence of, of our pain, as, as our pain keeps on going, the presence of God is there. We go back to, the, to chapter 42. And in chapter 42, verse 4, here's what it says. You said, this is Job speaking to God again, you said, listen now, and I will speak I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but I want you to hear this. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. This is after Job's journey through all of this suffering and all of this pain. He's saying that you told me to listen and I listened. I I had known about you, but now I see you. Now I, now I see you, and I think this is the whole point, that in the midst of the suffering, God is there. I don't think in the book of Job we don't see a God who is distant in our suffering. We don't see a God who is looking down and, and enjoying our pain or inflicting pain upon us. What we have is a God who sees us in our suffering and comforts us in our suffering. He is there. That at the end of the pain, Job is able to say, I knew about you, God, but now I have seen you. I've seen you move in my life. I've seen you have been present even in the midst of my pain. Even in the midst of your suffering, God is present. Here's the second thing I want you to hear today. When God, when the gifts we enjoy are gone, God is still good. When the gifts that we enjoy are gone, God is still good. In chapter 2, you read Satan and he says, God is bragging about Job. He said, have, you, have you checked out Job? This guy is blameless. He is upright. He fears me. He shuns evil. This guy is, Job is the man. And Satan just looks at God and goes, of course he worships you. 
He has everything that he has ever wanted. You have, you have hedged him in. Of course, of course Job would worship you. Right, take everything away and then surely he will curse you to his face, to your face, Satan says to God. And so, so this, is what we have. this is what we have. Take everything away and surely he will curse you to your face. Job begins to talk to his friends in chapter 3. Again, he begins this dialogue with them. As he's, that heavy chapter that I read is the beginning of the dialogue with his friends. And his, his friends begin to, to kind of give him some, some insight. And his friends begin to give him uh, a little bit of what they think about why things just happened. And they, they in turn give him some really bad theology. Like really bad theology. Here's, here's some things that they're saying. Chapter 4 verses 7 through 9. Of course, I covered it with my notes here. Hold on. Chapter 4. This is uh, Eliphaz talking to Job. And here's what he says. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of lionesses are scattered. Here's what he says. It's got to be your fault. You must have done something to make God mad. Maybe you weren't as blameless and upright as people claim you to be. Right? His other friend continues on, kind of piles it on in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses, verse 2 through 4. How, how long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Your kids are dead, Job, because they were sinners. Ouch. This is, the, this, is the advice that, this is the advice that they're giving him right now. Your kids are dead because they were sinners. It continues. His third friend in chapter 11 continues kind of on the same thing here. <clears throat> Starting at verse 4. You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you to disclose you to you the secrets of wisdom. For true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. He goes down to 13. Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault you will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it over as only as water has gone by. Man, these are, these are some great friends that Job has. Right? This is why, Job, you're only going through this stuff because you're not as perfect as you think you are. Job, your kids are dead because they were sinners. Job, I, I wish that God would open his mouth and just show you what you did wrong so you would just stop talking this gibberish about being so faithful to God. Right? These are the friends that Job has right here. And, and, and this, is, this is honestly a false gospel here. Because here's what, here's what the false gospel says. Right? Suffering is evidence of God's displeasure for you. That you sin and you do things wrong and so the suffering that you have is brought on you by you. It is your fault that you're suffering. You, you might have heard this. You just must not have prayed hard enough. You must not have had enough faith. You must not have been as good a believer as you thought you were because look what's going on in your life. This is, this is a false gospel. This is not the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ says the offering, the God, says the, the opposite. The gospel of Christ says that suffering can be a means to know Christ even deeper. Why? Because in our suffering, God is there with us. That in our suffering, God helps us through. In our suffering, God is there and he's, he's right alongside of us. God is not just looking down on you, waiting for you to screw up so he can cause some suffering to happen in your life. This is the theology of Job's friends here. This is bad theology. 
Good theology is not that, man, you must have done something wrong in your life. Good theology is, man, this suffering, God is with me in this. God knows about suffering. God sent his son to die for you on a cross. You talk about suffering. Jesus knows what suffering is. Jesus sits with you in your suffering. Your suffering is not brought on you by something that you did wrong. And Job knows this. Job knows that even though the good gifts that I had are gone, God is still good. God is still good. Chapter 13, verse 15, he even says this. This is Job speaking, and if you don't have this underlined, I want you to just read this. This is Job in the midst of his trials, in the midst of hearing this from his friends. He says this, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job knows that even though all of the good things that I enjoy, all of the good gifts that God gave me are gone, God is still good. God is still good. And I will hope in him, which brings me to my last truth this morning, that even in the depth of our despair, even in the depth of our despair, God is our hope. Even in the midst of the worst suffering of our lives, God can be our hope. If you turn over to Job chapter 19 with me, starting at verse 13, it says, He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me as a foreigner. They look on me as a stranger. I summon my servant, but he doesn't answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. <laughs> I think that's kind of funny, but my breath is offensive to my wife. I've lo- I'm loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All of my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough? Of my flesh, even in the depth of this despair. I want you to see how he continues. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead and engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed yet in my flesh I will see God I myself will see him with my own eyes I and not another how my heart yearns within me Can you imagine just going through what Job is going here? He's, he's talking about just being in the pits of despair, in the, in the deepest part of despair here in, in Job chapter 19. Look, even the little boys, they ridicule me. They don't want to be around me. My wife hates my breath, right? Like, my life is awful, but I wish that I could write this down. I know that my Redeemer lives, and there will be a day when I see him with my own eyes. Not someone else, but me. There will be a day when I see him. In the end, I will see God. The boils are gone. The sores are gone. The cancer is gone. The disease is gone. Where is our hope? Our hope, even in the midst of despair, is that one day we will see God face to face. In the end of the book, I'm talking about Bible now. Revelation 22, the last chapter of the last book. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit. And yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. This is back to the, the perfect, restored creation that was talked about in Genesis 1 and 2. 
There is no suffering here. There is no evil here. There is, uh, verse 3, there will no longer, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of his Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. In verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. This is the hope that we have. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of the deepest, darkest days of our life, we hope in the fact that one day we will see God face to face with our own eyes. And there will be no more pain and no more suffering, no more injustice, no more disease, no more, no more anything. This is our hope. This is what we look to in times of suffering. This is what we look to in times of despair. See, the question is not, why does God allow suffering? The question is, where is God in our suffering? And I can assure you that he is with you. God is with you. He is present in your pain. Even, in the, even when all good things are gone for you, God is still good. And even in the midst of your deepest, darkest places, even in the midst of the suffering, God is still our hope. One day we will see his face. This is the hope we have in Christ. Let's pray. God, we love you and we give you thanks. We give you praise this morning. God, we thank you that even in, our, even in the midst of our suffering, in our deepest, darkest places, God, that you were there. You are present with us. God, even though nothing good is happening in our lives, may we be reminded that you are good. God, even in the midst of, of the deepest, darkest places in our life, may we remember that we can have hope in you, knowing that one day all of this will be gone and we will see your face with our own two eyes. God, this is, this is our hope. God, we love you and we give you praise, we give you thanks. God, may we go from here and, and make a difference in our community because you are with us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you stand with me this morning? <clears throat> Let me just pray this blessing over you. May the God of hope and the God of love be present with you this week. Even in the midst of possible suffering, even in the midst of possible pain, I'm not sure what you're going through, but even in the midst of it all, may he remind you that he is there that he is good, and that he is your hope. Go in peace this week and make a difference in your community. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.